0: Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store.
1: Beautiful, beautiful morning we've been having. It's great that we've been able to sit down at the Lord's table and I want to remind you all that our shut-ins, some who have been a great part of this church but can't be here. They receive communion. Our deacons and our elders uh, serve them communion each month on Communion Sunday. And they bring us news and they bring us reports. And if you want to know how those folks are doing, those reports are available right out at our welcome desks. You can pick them up if you're going out the uh, chapel exit there by the church office. You can stop at the church office and read a little bit, and uh, some of the uh, folks have their addresses there if you want to drop them a card. It's a great, great blessing uh, for them to receive the Lord's Supper just as it is here as we're sitting together, uh, as a family, together. And I also just want to really encourage you, Bethesda United is uh, Wednesday night. We want to be together. If you can make it, as we go out to the Life Builders Ministry Uh, That would be wonderful. We had such a great time last year. I call it like a very uh, short-term mission trip right here in our own neighborhood. Bus will pick us up right here, and uh, we'll go out there and bless that neighborhood, and they'll bless us. So if you would like that, let us know as you leave today so we can uh, order the proper amount of transportation. This morning, I want to uh, talk to you from The book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you have your Bible, uh, be it paper or electronic, I'm going to read a little from Romans chapter 1, a couple verses, and then the start of Romans 12, and about the middle of Romans 13, just for you to get ready. Uh, This letter that Paul wrote to the Romans It's held up by many theologians, by great minds, as Paul's crowning achievement, his most profound work, the most comprehensive and systematic explanation of the gospel. Early on in the first chapter, uh, what most point to is Paul's purpose. They call it his thesis statement. Right at the outset of his letter, it's in chapter 1. It's verses 16 and 17. I want to read them to you this morning. Paul's thesis, his thesis statement, his purpose for writing this letter to the Romans. He said in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So this apostle identifies two main themes. First, seems obvious, straightforward, the gospel. The gospel, it reveals God's righteousness, power for salvation, Not just for one person or a few people, but for everyone, for everyone who believes. That's his number one purpose to talk about the gospel and its power. Number two, the righteousness of God in the gospel, which is received by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Number two, Paul's going to write about living by faith. The apostle expounds on these two themes. The gospel first. He writes about the necessity of the gospel. He writes theology. Talks about the law, of doctrine, this gospel theme, and what it means theologically. It consumes the first 11 chapters of this letter. And then Paul changes. He advances now to his second purpose, living it out. He can write all all about doctrine. He can write all about theology. But how do we apply that into our lives? We have a saying here. We put it simply. Live the Word. We can't just know the Word. We need to live it out. We need to apply it in our life daily. Paul expounds on this theme. He moves from theology to ethics to practical application. How can we live this called the gospel? And he begins this theme in Romans chapter 12. The first two verses. I'll read those. It begins with therefore. He begins with therefore because he's been expounding for these first 11 chapters on theology and doctrine. Now he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now through these closing chapters of the letter, chapters he writes and talks about living as a person of faith. For one who says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I live by faith. Do we say that this morning? Can you say that? Can you say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And can you further it and say, I live by faith? Paul says then to that person, and if that's you this morning, and if you're claiming that, you're saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I live by faith. This statement transcends time. It applies to all of us here who confess and believe the gospel. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed. Be transformed. Renew your mind. Now, how do we accomplish this? How do we accomplish this non-conformance to the world? It's easy to say, don't conform. But how? Well, the apostle doesn't just end his letter right there. It doesn't end at the end of verse 2 in Romans 12. No, he goes on with practical application. This is what I call Paul's Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave a Sermon on the Mount. You can read it in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, 7. This is Paul's Sermon on the Mount as he closes out the letter to the Romans. What does he write in chapter 12 after these two verses? He writes... About how do we live? Show sincere love. Hate what is evil. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If your enemy is hungry, Paul writes, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Overcome evil with good. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives giving the sermon. But Paul goes on. Chapter 14, don't quarrel over disputable matters. Don't tempt another believer uh, to fall by behavior that you consider appropriate, but that believer doesn't. Don't tempt that believer. Make every effort to live peaceably. Chapter 15, he goes on. Bear with the failings of the weak. Build up and encourage others. Accept others who believe even though they're different from you. This is all practical application. This is all living the word of God. Chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 15. What about chapter 13? I want to focus a little on chapter 13 this morning. Here Paul writes, be subject to the authority over you. Again, practical application. You need to subject yourself to the authorities over you. Pay your taxes, pay your debts. And Then he uses this idea of debt. He uses this idea of debt to teach us. To further instruct us about life, he uh, wants uh, us to know what the motivating force should be behind all of Christian life and how significant it is. This is Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Another section of this uh, great, great exposition I call the Sermon on the Mount in Paul's letter. He says this, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is all practical application of all the doctrine that he expounded upon. And how does he how does he set it out here in this section? love. Love. Love of others is to drive our life of faith. It's to drive our life in Jesus Christ. It is a central tenet of the gospel. Love. God's highest exhibition of love came in the giving of his son to pay a debt. We've talked about it. The cross. Jesus Christ paid a debt. He was the perfect sacrifice. He paid a debt required for sin, a price no one else could pay. He gave everyone the opportunity to be pardoned for their sin by his sacrificial death. He was the perfect sacrifice. Paul's encouragement then is to consider yourself indebted to others based on this love that Jesus Christ has shown for you. Now you have a debt to pay, a debt of love, he calls it. He says, show others love. His encouragement is to consider yourself indebted to others. Pay that debt of love. Understand, because the final salvation, he says, salvation is nearer. He's talking about, you know, the appearance of Christ is nearer now than when we first believe, and that's true. Every day we get closer to the coming of Christ. We don't know when it is. But he says, live like this. Understand the day is near. Put aside the deeds of the darkness. Remember how he began this. Remember his his start of this portion, this sermon on the Mount of Paul's. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here is practical advice by the apostle on how not to conform Be determined to live by love. Put aside the deeds of darkness. Behave decently, he writes. Decently. Now that's a subjective term, decently. To be called decent. Have you ever been called decent? Decent used to be high praise. It used to be a great compliment. It meant you were a person of integrity, that you were honest. You are a person of propriety. You're kind. You're modest. You have high moral character. This is what it, it meant to be called decent. But that definition has seemed to have waned. We don't really use it that often. I think most often I hear decent and it means substandard, it means fair, uh, sort of good. Hey, that's a decent car. That's rusty, runs a little rough. Well, it needs new tires, but hey, it'll get you from point A to point B. It's decent. You know, but there is a higher meaning to this word. There is a higher meaning when it's applied to, to people, a higher meaning of integrity, honesty, kindness, and all of that. Is that a big deal? You know, is being decent a big deal? How does, our, how does our present culture view this idea that the apostle wrote about live decently is decency the pattern of the world i read an article that said it said this in a closing line please remember how common decency actually works what was this article about it was about a thoughtless inconsiderate narcissistic overbearing self-absorbed traveler on an airplane have you ever met that person they are just knocking things down they're, they're knocking your arm off the armrest, they're shouting, they're yelling, they're using their cell phone when they shouldn't, they're causing all kind of commotion. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're offended by such boorish behavior, a lack of common decency. But when it comes to the world, you know, this idea of decent or indecent, if things are exponentially worse than the bad traveler, yeah, we can call that a lack of common decency but there has been I would say in our culture a continuous downward decay of decency and most in the world say what's the big deal you Christians your idea of decency is intolerance It's bigoted, it's judgmental, it's hypocritical, it's closed-minded, it's old-fashioned, it's archaic. That's the characterization that the world gives a decent Christian, one who does not conform to the pattern of the world. The accusations come, don't they? You're unloving, you're uncaring, you're intolerant. And then what occurs? What can occur? In in many Christians, it's an inner fight, an inner battle. It can even be an inner war, this struggle, because we're ridiculed. And the temptation comes the temptation to be accepted. It becomes great. The temptation to be received is normal, to conform with the world around us. It's a tremendous pull. Peer pressure, social influence, workplace inclusion, they drive a craving inside of us to to be accepted, a longing uh, to eliminate this ridicule we might receive. You're intolerant, you're you're judgmental, that ridicule, that rejection. Nobody likes it. So there's this pull to get rid of it to conform to the world. But conforming to the world, the apostle said, that's not the way of a Christian. That's what Paul said. The other apostles agreed. Peter agreed. He wrote, do not conform with the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but be holy. Peter said you should feel like strangers and foreigners in the world. What else did he say? You're a chosen generation, Christians. You're a chosen generation, a royal priest, and a holy nation, God's special and peculiar possession in the world, but not conforming to it. And all the while, the world says, eh, "Decency, your version of decency? No. What's a big deal? Be like us. Be like us." It's okay. What you call indecency? It's acceptable. Why are you beating yourself up over it? Don't worry about it. Don't be weird. Don't be weird. Don't be odd. Don't be strange. Be like us. Come on, come on. And that pull becomes stronger. The temptation to conform, it gets heavier. And then what happens? Conformance conformance to the world it it, it starts it can come slowly a little here a little there Eh, maybe a bad joke whatever laughing with the guys at work doing the things that the kids do at school that you know you shouldn't be doing and decency becomes redefined it decays it declines it deteriorates it dies we hear the death of decency In conformance to the world, in the words we say, in the words people say, in their talk, their language, their choice of words, it's all fueled by the world, too. What do we see? What do we hear? What do we take in through uh, movies, songs, and all forms of media? You know, at one time, things that we hear and see, they would have been scandalous. They would have broken laws of the land. People would have went to jail for saying what they say, exposing what they expose. But now, it's commonplace. Now it's called decency. And it's not just how we talk. It's how we communicate in social media. I see it all the time. I see it from students to adults. I see the abbreviations. I see the shorthands that are used. L-M-A-O. You know, O-M-G. There might be an F thrown in there. What? I know what that means. What are you using that for? And, And I read this example just this morning. This was Just looking at the news this morning, the Adley Junior League softball team was removed from the World Series Championship game yesterday. This is a big deal. This is the World uh, Championship Little League International Tournament. So this team was removed after posting an inappropriate photo on social media. The photo shows several members of the team giving the middle finger to the camera. It was quickly decided to disqualify the team, which consists of girls ages 12 to 14. I saw the picture. They were disqualified. The Little League International Tournament Committee has removed the team for violation of policies regarding unsportsmanlike conduct, inappropriate use of social media, and the high standard that the Little League International holds for all its participants. Well, that's something out in the world. You know what? If the world gets it, shouldn't we? if there's some parts of the world that actually get this, and they actually do have a standard of decency, we should too. We as Christians should too. But you know what? I have seen these types of things unfortunately, from Christians. That, and, and more, that and things I can't even mention. I can't even repeat. The likes of the 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 likes, the things that you thumbs up, the reposts, the retweets, uh, the things that bring in a video or uh, a link to a site that has just a perverse or or obscene name from people who have selected obscene names. I can't even say them out loud, and, and the folks are retweeting it, re, reposting it. If you call yourself a Christian, why would you repost something like that? Why would you put up something that in the headline has these four-letter words? You know, or from a person who has chosen this, this profane screen name. Now, recently, I saw a person connected uh, through social media, one of uh, the social media channels I use. Now, this person would say, I'm a Christian posted a movie, posted a little clip from a movie and put a comment there that, hey, this is something something like this. This is hilarious. had those little faces that are laughing really hard and crying tears and, you know, this is hilarious. You should check it out. It was a movie I'd never seen before. So I thought some comic relief. I I turn it on, and it's just one curse word after another. It's a situation, you know, it's violent, vulgar, crude. There's a man beating a woman. This is funny, supposedly. i got to shut it off. And the sad thing, this is not unusual from a person who claims to be a Christian. I actually see it as kind of common. The indecency, the words, the abbreviations, the posts, the retweets, the likes, the thumbs up, all for profanity, vulgarity. It is young people, it's old people, it's moms, it's dads. And I ask myself, why would someone who says, I am a Christian... You know, post all these types of things. And I can only conclude that the attitude is, what's a big deal? Well, this is not indecent. There's been a desensitization to the profane and a redefining of what it means to be decent. Now, there, there doesn't seem to be an interest in living the Word. And the Word says be motivated by love for others. Don't drag them down. Lift them up. You know, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desire of the flesh. What's the desire here for all this? It's to get likes and thumbs up and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, a thousand people liked what I posted. Yeah, it's, a, it's a desire for acceptance. It's interesting, too, that the apostle uses uh, the illustration of clothing. He said, put on the armor of light. Clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are images which convey doing the utmost, doing the utmost to portray Jesus Christ to others. How are we clothed? Now, that's the image. That's the, the metaphor. But I want to move beyond that. I just want to take it literally. How are we clothed? Modestly? You know, if I say modest, that word seems to be a bone of contention. To say anything about modesty is risky. It's a risk of being labeled a sexist. You know, people nowadays, they should be allowed to walk about in all stages of undress, and we can't complain. You know, styles are scant, they're see-through. Wardrobe malfunctions are planned. You know? But there seems to be a paradox sometimes even in the culture. In the culture that accepts all of this, there are some pockets that still have some standards. Last month I'm gonna preach it. You're I am. That's what I you know. You know, as I said, it's 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 risky. I don't have that. I say some of these things because I feel like, you know, I'll probably hear about it, especially talking about modesty. But as I said, in pockets of the world, there are standards. Last month, the LPGA introduced new dress code rules for women golfers, just last month. No racer backs, I don't know what those are. No plunging necklines, but that's obvious. No leggings unless under a skirt or shorts. Skirts, skorts, and shorts must be long enough to not see the player's bottom area. And they included this. Even if covered by undershorts, at any time, can't see any of the bottom area whether that player's standing or bent over. I wouldn't even think that you'd have to write that, but I guess they had to make that a rule. And... (laughs) You know, some in the world get it. We should, too. We should get it. Our decency should be above and beyond this. You know, I've got another example from the world. In March this year, United Airlines would not allow two girls to board a flight because they were wearing leggings. A a spokesman for United confirmed that the two teenage girls' leggings violated the company's dress code policy for past travelers. This is a company benefit that allows United employees and their dependents to travel for free on a standby basis. The spokesman said past travelers are representing the company and as such are not allowed to wear lycra and spandex leggings tattered or ripped jeans, midriff shirts, flip-flops, bare feet, or any article of clothing that shows their undergarments. So they banned them from the flight because they, they're representing the company. Do we represent Jesus? And what, what is his what is his standard? The other airlines, Delta and American, they have similar policies. In fact, American Airlines, they have a policy for general travelers. And it says, travelers are not to wear torn, dirty, or frayed clothing, clothing that is distracting or offensive to others, or clothing that is vulgar or violates community standards of decency. But what are the community standards of decency? You know, people were all up in arms because of this United flight, and they they wouldn't allow these two girls on. Chrissy Teigen, I don't know who she is, but she's supposed to be some famous model. Uh, She responded. She said the next time she flies United, she's going topless. Now, that's the community standard of decency she aspires to. You know, how far are we from it? I ask, you know, summertime, have you been to the beach lately? Oh, everybody's like, "Uh uh-oh, where is he going? No, didn't (laughs) talk about the beach, you know. I don't know why it is. When we get sand under our feet, you know, I'm standing on the concrete, I move over to the sand, to the beach, you know, all sense of decency just goes away. There are no standards, both ladies and men. You know, I've seen some men in their Speedos, Lord of mercy, I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed for them. Seriously, brother, go put some pants on. I mean, that is, what are you thinking? I'm insulted, ugh. And girls, you know, the bathing suits keep getting smaller and smaller. And I know ladies, you don't want to hear from a man. You do not want to hear from a man talking about modesty. I know I'll get beat up. I know I'll probably get some, you know, hey, it's 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 a great suit or whatever. So I thought maybe you should have a woman's perspective. I want you to hear from a, a lady named Jessica Ray, a young lady. She's an actress. She's a Christian, and she did a talk on the evolution of the bikini and modesty. And I just thought, rather than me talk, talk about it, I'd let her talk about it. So let's give a listen to what Jessica has to say.
0: The popularity of the bikini has been attributed to the power of women, not the power of fashion. And a New York Times reporter called the bikini the millennial equivalent of the power suit. So I'd like to take a couple minutes to examine this so-called power that wearing the bikini brings. A few years ago, male college students at Princeton University participated in studies of how the male brain reacts to seeing people in different amounts of clothing. Brain scans revealed that when men are shown pictures of scantily-clad women, the region of the brain associated with tools such as screwdrivers and hammers lit up. Some men showed zero brain activity in the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that lights up when one ponders another person's thoughts, feelings, and intentions. Researchers found this shocking, because they almost never see this part of the brain shut down in this way. And a Princeton professor said, it's as if they're reacting to these women as if they are not fully human. It's consistent with the idea that they are responding to these photographs as if they were responding to objects, not people. In a separate Princeton study, when men viewed images of women in bikinis, they often associated with first-person action verbs, such as I push, I grab, I handle. But when they saw images of women dressed modestly, they associated them with third-person action verbs, such as she pushes, she grabs. Analysts at the National Geographic concluded that bikinis really do inspire men to see women as objects, as something to be used, rather than someone to connect with. So... It seems that wearing a bikini does give a woman power, the power to shut down a man's ability to see her as a person, but rather as an object. But now comes the problem of modesty. The very word modesty is often met with such disdain, especially among the younger high school crowd, I remember speaking to a group of teenagers in New York, and when I mentioned modesty, this girl yelled from the back, what am I supposed to dress like then, a grandma? (laughs) And I was scared. But I have to admit, I thought the same thing when I first learned about modesty. I thought it meant I had to be frumpy and dumpy and out of fashion. And I imagined myself wearing dresses like this, sitting alone in my living room, never going on another date ever again, and never getting married. I have dedicated a lot of my time. I travel all over the country speaking to girls about this issue. I've just written a book called Decent Exposure about it. And we need to teach girls that modesty isn't about covering up our bodies because they're bad. Modesty isn't about hiding ourselves. It's about revealing our dignity. We were made beautiful in his image and likeness. So the question I'd like to leave you with is, how will you use your beauty? Thank you.
1: So I hope you take that perspective from a young lady. And it's interesting, I thought she titled her book, Decent Exposure. And as I listened, I often am skeptical of people who cite studies. Uh, So I researched this particular Princeton study, and I found it, and I read it, and I believe she accurately is reflecting its conclusions. And it's simply put, the less clothes, the more man's brain responds that's an object. The more clothes, the more man's brain responds that's a person. And I like how she described uh, the idea of modesty which goes for both men and women. How do you value yourself? Is your value this outer shell and how much of it you can show off to others? Or is your value who you are? As a person of Jesus Christ, you know, saved by the blood of Christ? Does your value come from not just what's in you, but who's in you? What do you want to reveal to others? You know, modesty, it's not about covering up. I liked that. It's about revealing your dignity. You were created in His image. God said, We read it, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, behave decently as in the daytime. But we get pulled, we get pulled by that world, pulled by this downward spiral toward the deeper and deeper cesspool of indecency. And when we conform to these patterns of the world, we participate in the pulling down of others. And that's not love. Let's live, as the apostle described, love-inspired, love-driven. There is a blessing in it. Love is the fulfillment of the law, he said. Love esteems others. Love lifts others. Consider how others need to be lifted up. And let love induce you. Let it inspire you to behave decently as in the daylight. That everything that you exposed is righteous. Think about not only the words you say, but the words that you post online, the abbreviations you type, the places where you put a thumbs up and a like. And and you don't need to abbreviate with the A's and the F's and all the other letters that we know what you mean. Think about that before you type it, before you tweet it, post it, Snapchat it. You know, think about what's in the photo, what's in the video. Think about what's in the song lyrics. Think about what you put out there. Is it love-driven? Is it non-conforming and transforming and uplifting? You know, or does it conform to the world's pattern? Does it make you fit into that world mold? Does it co- coincide with this conf- conforming to the world? You know, to satisfy uh, you know the need for acceptance. Consider how you present yourself. Are you a modest? Are you showing off your physicality or are you presenting your dignity, your value, your worth as a person bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ? You know, I know in all these areas, it's a a tug of war. I know it because I see it. I know it because I felt it too. You know, we're all humans. We We get these pulls, these temptations. The world wants to seduce us to conform. And I know for many, it's hard. It's a trial, you know, the peer pressure, the coworkers inviting you to join in. You know, the relatives saying, "Hey, you're weird. Why don't you just be like us?" It all presses us to conform. You know in that trial. It can sometimes feel heavy. You know, on the other side, it's life. On the other side, it's living out. It's living the active. Word of God, the, the alive Word of God which says it's better not to conform but be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, the righteous will live by faith. When you feel the pull of the world, you know, feel the pull of Jesus, reach for him. Use your faith. You no, know, Feel the pull of your faith. The purpose of faith in, in Jesus Christ is Not to overcome, or or not to prevent, I should say, but it is to overcome. And it doesn't prevent trials, but it enables us to bear them. That's what our faith does. It's not to keep us out of conflict, but enable us to confront it and to conquer it. We can be conquerors over this stuff. We can. The question is not how much, uh, so much about the temptation or the trial, but it's how do you come out of it? How do you come through it? Make it your love-driven goal to come out, to come through on the side of decency, even though it demands acting differently, even though it demands behaving and looking differently than the world. Do you want clean hands and a pure heart? Do you want to be transformed, not conformed? Now let's be a decent generation. A generation that seeks God's face. And I invite you to stand and let's sing that. I just want to ask, though, before we sing, are any of you feeling the pull? Have you been feeling the draw? And, and maybe it's not these few examples I put out there. Maybe it's a draw to another area of indecency, you know, sin. We're all tempted You know, Jesus was tempted. The temptation comes for all of us. I want us to be a church of overcomers. I want us to be a church that stands clean. And if you're feeling the pull and you've been tempted and you just want some prayer as we sing this, come on down. We'll pray for you. We'll pray together. There's no shame in being tempted. The devil tempts everyone. But how are you going to come through? How are you going to come out? Let's pray. You know, we can pray that we would be people who have clean hands and a pure heart. Make that your prayer this morning. Make that your prayer today. I know we get the pull, we get the tug. But is it your prayer? Lord, give me clean hands. Lord, give me a pure heart. God, I want to be a decent upright person who represents Jesus Christ fully, completely, wholly, righteously. Is that your prayer this morning? Make it your prayer if it's not. God will help you through the temptation. God can carry you. You know, his word says that he provides a way out. He doesn't put on us more temptation than we can bear because he provides the way out. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you know, strength, accountability from other Christians. When you're feeling this, reach out to them. You know, find some help. Don't stray that way. Let's just sing it one more time. Close with some praise to our God and make it your prayer that, God, you give us clean hands and a pure heart. And if any more need prayer, come. We have workers that'll pray with you.